Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins, and welcome back to another episode of the Box and One podcast. This one's going to be a little different than what we've done before. It's a solo mission, no campaign on this one with two players, just one. I'm going to be taking you through a mailbag episode, answering some questions that you had about the NBA, the NBA draft, and this draft class specifically, and some great philosophical questions as well. So thank you to all of you who have submitted. We're going to give you a quick shout out on the pod when we get to it. But right now, let's just talk a little bit about what's going on in the world of basketball. And before we we get going into that, we want to remind you to continue to share our podcast, like, subscribe on any of the platforms that you're using, even give us that thumbs up button on YouTube when we post it there. But make sure that everything you post it with, give us a little hashtag ban the take foul. We got to spread this, folks. There is no reason why the NBA competition committee can't be looking at this take foul situation and trying to eradicate it from the game. I don't know if I have the exact solution, whether it's two free throws in the ball every single time, you know, second time it's a disqualification for whoever commits the foul for your team, or even thought about, you know, docking a team a timeout if they end up using this as part of their strategy. But uh, we got to do something about this take foul folks. Some other content that we have that's out now or coming out soon, just released a video on YouTube at the beginning of this week on how this might be the year of the sophomore in the 2022 NBA draft. Our latest projection and big board actually has nine sophomores listed in our top 30, and we think that there's a chance that nine and maybe even one or two more sneak their way into the first round. There's guys like Jaden Ivey, Benedict Matherin, and Jonathan Davis who are kind of cementing themselves as top 10 picks. And we haven't seen a, a draft with three sophomores in the top 10 in a long time. You know, Keegan Murray, Mark Williams, Tari Eason from LSU, Jabari Walker at Colorado, Jordan Hall at St. Joseph's having a fantastic second year there. And then even a, a rebound candidate like Caleb Love, somebody who didn't play very well as a freshman but is living up to the expectation that many had for him about a year, year and a half ago, he could also find his way into the first round. So check out our YouTube channel for the latest video that that really dives deeply into each of those nine players, what's led to their ascent and why this draft class is lending itself to having this many sophomores take a leap. We also just posted a breakdown of some fantastic performances, what I call signature performances from last night on Monday the 3rd from Jonathan Davis and Keegan Murray. Uh, Both of those guys pretty much cemented themselves as as lottery picks. Davis probably more towards the top 10. You know, Keegan Murray, 35 points, eight rebounds, three blocks, while going five of six from three against Maryland. An awesome performance for him to open up Big Ten play. And then Jonathan Davis going head-to-head with Jaden Ivey and number three team in the country, Purdue. Davis was the best player on the court last night, and and he carried his team to victory on the road, 37 points, 14 rebounds, three assists. He took 12 free throws. He was fearless throughout the night, just made big shot after big shot, the right play at every single moment. And we on our Substack page, theboxin1.substack.com, broke down the performances from both of them in depth in ways that really led us to believe that these aren't just isolated standalone great performances but feathers in the cap for guys who really do deserve high end first round praise what's going on in the nba well clay thompson is coming back soon i'm i'm giddy over that one 
really excited over seeing one of my favorite players to watch really returning into an NBA uniform. Curious to see how he looks and how he moves, but if he's anything close to 95 to 100% of how he was pre-injury, this Warriors team is going to be fantastic. And college basketball is nearing the halfway point of the season. You know, league play is starting to ramp up, I think, other than the SEC Big 12 Challenge, I believe it is, that's still to be played a little bit later on this year. Pretty much everything else is taking place in conference. So this is a time when competition levels are very consistent, hopefully, and we'll knock on wood that we're on the other side of some of these COVID pauses and we just get to see great competitive basketball. I always say I love watching conference competition for some of these prospects because nobody understands their opponent from a scouting perspective better than coaches in league. You know, they meet twice a year. A lot of their livelihoods depend on winning and shutting down these games and finding comparative advantages. So they study their opponent's offensive sets and plays. They know the personnel and their tendencies to a much higher degree than they would from you know a random Thursday matchup against Western Kentucky, for example. So this makes it much more evident that our prospects that we're evaluating, you know, the, the secret's out on these guys. What they're trying to do, the opponent is game planning for and finding ways to stop. So can they still get to their strengths and their sweet spots on the floor? Are they still managing to execute despite the fact that an opponent is forcing them left or finding ways to blow up this particular action that gets that three-point shooter a shot when he needs one? This is the time that I start to come alive as a scout because there's enough data in the first 15, 16 games of the year to get a good feel for who these players are and so much excitement over the final half in how they're going to be played and, and what really this means for, for their draft prospects. So enough of me rambling on just uh, ad hoc here about the, the state of basketball. We want to answer your questions and, and I appreciate everybody who offered some up today. We, we took questions on Twitter. We took questions on our YouTube channel and had a lot of great ones so we're going to kind of guide you through this. As, as you'll see, it's, it's layered in different regards. First is really prospect-based, looking at you know, some of the specific players in this class, maybe some NBA teams and what they need or how to mesh top-level prospects with their long-term roster building. And then at the very end, a few questions about draft and scouting philosophy, right? Where is the NBA headed? What type of prospects stand out? Where do we struggle or need to improve as, as the box in one. So first question here comes from Shank at Shankopotamus on Twitter. Really fantastic name there. Shank wants to know, will Jaden Ivey's off-ball defense limit his impact at the next level? And, and you know, Ivey, this is a, the appropriate time to be starting with this question because of the, the matchup that he just had with Jonathan Davis. They weren't matched up on each other exclusively the entire night, but Ivy did spend a lot of time on him on ball. Now, Wisconsin's offense wasn't anything overly complex. It's not the typical swing offense that we're used to seeing under Bo Ryan. They run a lot of mismatch post-up stuff for Davis, single high and double high ball screens, find ways to kind of play through him a little bit. And I appreciate that as a coaching staff when you have a rare player with the caliber of Davis's to really embrace playing through him. But I think in those moments when Ivy wasn't guarding Davis, 
it might have been a little bit more illuminating for how his off-ball role might look. And, and the conclusion that I've really come to is that no, because he's so athletic and, and really is too transcendent of an athlete in transition, off-ball defense is one of the few things that I, I just don't see limiting his impact while it does need to get better. You know, there are so many guys like Damian Lillard, James Harden, hell, even Russell Westbrook this year, who we've seen struggle a lot from one pass away or losing his man on, on cutting and, and back screening actions. These are guys who are just so good offensively that they're able to play through some of those mistakes. Ivy is not on their level right now offensively. There's, there's no doubt about that, but he has the raw tools to get there someday and maybe play more of a Westbrook or John Morant type of role. And the spots that he's really being mocked at, and, and I think there's very little chance of him falling outside the top five or six, you draft him with the intention of him turning into that level offensive player. So yes, you have to coach him on the help defense side of things. You have to perhaps limit his minutes early if he's doing more harm than good in that regard. But long-term, you draft a guy like Jaden Ivey to be the engine that drives your offense. I don't really see any way to, to bench him or um, you know, really limit his overall upside as a result of that. T to me, the biggest limitation with Ivey is going to be that mid-range pull-up. Right now, his shot from three is better sophomore year than it was freshman year, which is why he's continued to climb up some draft boards. But it's a set shot. It's, it doesn't translate well to you know, dribble pull-ups in the mid-range, especially at the end of the clock. He doesn't have that touch, doesn't necessarily have the lift on his live body jumper right now. So when I'm thinking about where Ivy's impact is going to be at the next level, he's far too good athletically with his change of, of speed and, and playing out of ball screens a little bit. You, you have to have the ball in his hands. But if he's not going to be a consistent one-on-one -on -one shot creator for himself at the end of a shot clock because he doesn't have that mid-range bag and just lacks that same lift on his jump shot as he does with his athleticism near the rim. I, I think that's the biggest concern for me about Ivy moving forward. Again, right now I have him fourth on our big board. I expect him to stay in the top five or six, but I certainly would not be surprised if the, the mid-range pull-up numbers are something that gives a, a couple teams pause about handing him the keys to an offense long-term. All right, our next question comes from Eric Dueck via YouTube who wants to know, who of the top prospects do the Houston Rockets target considering they already have a point guard, Kevin Porter Jr., a shooting guard, Jalen Green, and a big man in Alperin Shengun? Now, look, Jabari Smith is the obvious target here because I think that he, in, in kind of – the, the floor spacing that he gives around Jalen Green allows the two of them to be fantastic. I also think that Shen Goon's playmaking at the top of the key fits really well with a unique offensive talent like Jabari, somebody who, you know, can be run off screens, play in the pick and pop in different areas. I'm envisioning some wonky Shen Goon is the handler, Smith is the screener, four, five pick and roll. So that, you know, first and foremost, it has got me very excited for the Houston Rockets. I will say that I don't think Kevin Porter Jr. is the guy that they have to build around or avoid taking some draft prospects because he's already on their roster. He's good. He's talented. And this really doesn't have anything to do with the recent out, outburst during the, the Denver Nuggets game that got him suspended. 
I think this is more just about his overall, you know, quality to be one of the, the key cogs in the team. I think he's best in the role that Houston has him in right now, where they need offense and production and not necessarily overall uh, efficiency or playmaking for others on a really high level. I think Porter's very, very good, but I also think that if they have a better option at, at point guard that they could take through the draft, that I, I wouldn't hate them doing that. And, and I don't think Porter's good enough to you know, avoid a top five talent at the point as a result. Now, Jaden Ivey next to Jalen Green, if we're going to have that conversation, not quite sure how I feel about that. That one would be interesting because I think they both are best with the ball in their hands. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about Ivy and Green together. That, that would be a, a really interesting fit. You know, I think Paolo Bancaro and Shen Goon might work fine. It's probably not a very good defensive front court by any means. But anytime you're building around Shengun at the five, you kind of understand that you're you know, trading a little bit of defensive productivity for the overall offensive boom that you're going to get as a result. And last, I think Chet Holmgren's the only other top four guy mentioned right now. Man, Chet and Shengun together. I, I think Holmgren's versatility is strong enough to make it work. But I think you probably have to commit to playing a style similar to what Cleveland has done with Evan Mobley and Jarrett Allen. And A, I think Mobley's a better perimeter defender than a guy like Chet is. And B, Jarrett Allen's a better rim protector than a guy like Shen Goon is. So I, I hesitate for Holmgren. You know, of the top prospects there, and again, you, you mentioned top prospects. I think we have a top four on our board. Those are the four guys that we mentioned I think Holmgren's probably the diciest fit. I think Jabari is the cleanest fit in Houston. And I'd be really curious to see how Paolo and Jaden Ivey would play out in Houston because they would really alter the long-term plans and just commit their rosters to playing a certain way. So kind of an, an interesting question. And, you know, one of the reasons it, it, it probably is so fascinating is because this is a draft class that doesn't have a lot of elite wings at the top. Of those four, Jabari is probably the closest we have to a true wing because of his floor spacing potential. So that's probably why he's he's the biggest fit. And there are so many teams that are just in need of wings that are going to be picking at the top of this draft. What a fascinating dynamic to have. Four or five teams that are tanking and bottoming it out that pretty much all need a wing. And none, none of the top players on, on draft boards are going to be at that position. So I think that's part of why Jabari Smith might be rising a little bit higher to be the, the odds on favorite to go first overall is because he fits that a little more clearly than a guy like Paolo, but man, does it create for a fascinating dilemma with how things are going to go in the NBA draft? Well, speaking of Houston and speaking of that top of the draft, Gregory waters on YouTube also wanted to know about the Oklahoma City Thunder. He asked, what happens if OKC falls outside the top three and doesn't get one of their bigs? What should they do? So a similar question, but kind of flipped in a different perspective. OKC has their backcourt of the future. Shea Gilgis-Alexander and Josh Giddy, and they should build around them. They've both been so good early on in their careers. SGA is a legitimate all-star candidate. Giddy is the youngest player in NBA history to post a triple-double, and he's been probably one of the top five or six passers in the NBA this year. 
excuse me, dealing with, uh, with mid-season coaching voice here. But, uh, yeah, Giddy's been one of the top, top five or six passers in the NBA. So here's where we're at. Let's set the stage at the top of the draft. Right now there are four teams that are trying to bottom out. Oklahoma City, Houston, Orlando, and Detroit. One of them is going to fall outside of the top three. And we could have the possibility of one of the other teams actually leapfrogging them into the top four, which means they would fall, you know, fifth or below. Now, something else that's going to be the wild card through the rest of the season to watch is New Orleans. I wouldn't be shocked if they kind of joined them in trying to bottom out and contending for one of those top picks, because at this point, there's very little reliability that Zion Williamson is going to play a game. I just, I'm not willing to put any money on saying Zion suits up this year. So if you're New Orleans, you might try to join that race, grab another elite prospect, and now you're ready to take off and build around Zion once he gets healthy. But this question is about the Thunder. So let's let's circle back there so I don't end up ranting for too long. That tandem of Giddy and, and Gilgis Alexander is worth preserving and building around. At this point in their long-term rebuild, I always think that taking talent is the best way forward. But on the same token, adding another guard, a guy like Jaden Ivey to the mix, would not necessarily be ideal. So if things hold to where draft projections are right now, Bancaro, Jabari Smith, and Chet Holmgren go one, two, three. And Oklahoma City is picking just after that. What should they do? So I was able to think of three different pathways forward. Pathway number one is to try to leverage Ivy as the top guard prospect in this year's draft, or really whoever is, ends up getting the most amount of buzz at number four, number five, whenever they're on the clock, and try to leverage that to move down a few picks. I think Sam Presti, you know, would be fine adding a few more assets. Because at this point, what's a few more first-round draft picks for Oklahoma City, right? They're, they're very close to world domination. I think they're going to have the entire 2029 first round at some point. So if moving down four or five picks ends up getting them a one in the future, it doesn't compromise their ability to add a, a top 10 prospect while also making sure that they preserve their backcourt. I think that's probably something that's on the table. Pathway number two, take Ivy or you know, Jonathan Davis, whoever ends up being the top guard available, and really bank on the fact that SGA and Giddy are tall enough to defend up, that Ivy can play a little bit more of a wing, and Giddy and, and SGA can have their role on offense. You know, Ivy's a little bit more of an athletic, transition-bound slasher, play second side pick and roll type of prospect. But I don't know how I feel about that. I think of the three pathways forward. This is the one that gives me the most pause. So therefore what's pathway number three, I think it's taking a stab on somebody that would fit their core pretty well long-term that is still projectable in this top five or six range. And that's Patrick Baldwin jr. Look, he struggled out of the gate. There's, there's no doubt about that, but we know, at least from his time with Team USA and, and the glimpses that he has this year, if you simplify the game for a guy like Baldwin, just make him a jump shooter on the perimeter, run him off some screens, maybe mismatch post on the interior against a, a really small guy on occasion, the game simplifies and his role is pretty strong. 
because you have SGA and Giddy, A, those two guys need floor spacing and shooting, and B, you get the most out of Baldwin by having patience to continue to develop him while also knowing that you're maximizing his offensive role. All he's going to be asked to do is shoot the ball, rebound, and stay healthy. It's kind of like what you know Michael Porter Jr. has been asked to do in Denver. They have Jokic. They have Jamal Murray. They have a great talent in Porter, but his best fit for their team is to just be a, a prolific jump shooter. And I do think that Patrick Baldwin Jr. can turn into that someday. Again, hard to ignore his struggles, but he may end up being the best combination of talent and positional fit next to the building blocks that Sam Presti has already gotten here in Oklahoma City. All right, moving on to the G League now. Sarasta at C. Sarasta wants to know if Dyson Daniels' jump shot gets more consistent, can he find his way into the top seven of this draft? That's a big if to me. Right now, he's a 25.5% from three through a fair amount of games. He, he did hit a game winner a few weeks ago for the Ignite, so don't want to ignore that. I think the form is good, not great, somewhat projectable, but at the end of the day, I think there's probably going to be enough hesitation about buying the jumper long-term that he stays outside of the top 10. There's a lot to like for me about his balance game, the passing, the competitiveness, and, and how he has been that main connector piece for the G League Ignite thus far this year. And, and by the way, if you're playing along with our NBA draft bingo on this podcast, make sure you, you mark off connector piece on your square because, uh, I'm guilty as charged with falling into the trap of, of all of those terms that we throw out far too often here on some of our podcasts. But I digress. But I think Daniels is more of a late lottery guy. This is a class that is going to have a lot of volatility in their prospects. There are a lot of high upside freshmen who also have a pretty considerable downside. Daniels presents himself as the safest option, and that fits into a really neat box for a team that in the later part of the lottery is knocking on the door of the playoffs and just needs somebody to come in, play their role, embrace it, move the ball, defend, and, and do all the, the little things. And, and that's where Daniels thrives to me. He's a great on-ball defender, smart off-ball, very, very good passer, probably not a primary option, but a good secondary creator. Uh, I like Dyson a lot, which leads us to stay here on the G League. Um, Cade Schmidt via YouTube actually asked about Michael Foster, and I'm glad because this is a guy who I don't think has gotten enough attention or conversation kind of written off because he's a clunky fit somewhat with the G League, and, and a lot of people don't love the way that he's kind of represented himself as a, as a me-before-we guy. I haven't necessarily gotten that from him, uh, but the question here from Cade, can Michael Foster be a small ball five in the NBA? I think not only can he, but I think he has to be. Because right now he's listed at 6'9", 220, definitely strong enough to be an NBA 5, but lacks some of the quickness to be a full-time 4. Uh, as of this, this recording, averaging 15 points, just under 9 rebounds, about 2 assists, and, and just under 2 blocks a game. Shooting splits are solid, too. 50% from the field, 33 from 3, 73 from the free throw line. So a lot to like. From a number standpoint, I always try to caution people about getting the, the conversation about a tweener and somebody who's multi-positional confused. It, it's a matter of perspective a lot of times. You know, 
foster for a lot of the negativity that surrounds him. He's seen as somebody not quick enough to be the four, but not polished enough as a rim protector, as a leaper to be somebody who plays the five. Because he's productive offensively, he scores the basketball, he shoots it well, he's a pretty good passer. You know, I think that this is more the case of positional versatility. He's strong and he has a good body. He can be that hybrid four or five if, if you need him to. And, and look, this is probably one of the toughest positions for a young player to master because you have to learn how to play the five at the NBA level in order to be on the floor at crunch time. But you know that probably the majority of your minutes early in your career aren't going to come there. So uh, I, uh, I know that there's a long learning curve ahead for a guy like Foster to be able to do this. But right now, here's where I'm at. I had him as a top 20 talent coming into the year, dropped him down a little bit because of those worries about you know, the, the tweener versus multi-positional guy. I'm starting to come back around on him a little bit more. If he tempers down his shot selection, he finds ways to be a little bit more competitive on the defensive end consistently and, and master some of those angles. I think he's going to be solid, but there's no doubt. I have my worries about Foster being a four at the NBA full-time, which means that in order for his career to take off and for him to live up to his potential, he has to master being a small ball five. The next question comes from DJ Simple Jack. DJ Simple, that's an elite Tropic Thunder reference right there. DJ Simple Jack via YouTube asked about Oscar Shibway. Do you think Oscar Shibway is a draft, draftable prospect? And if so, how high can he go? I definitely think he's draftable. Um, a year ago, a little over a year ago, when he was at West Virginia before you know, transferring and kind of disappearing into the night, I had Shibway as a first-round prospect. I had the, the fortune to see him play a couple times when he was in high school. He had more, I don't want to call it perimeter skill, but he, he had an ability to be somewhat natural, making plays, passing, stepping away from the basket that he didn't get to show at West Virginia. And he's slowly getting there here at Kentucky, knocking down a couple more mid-range jumpers, like, playing in transition, maybe a little bit more, but the meat and potatoes of his game all takes place within three feet of the basket. He's a sensational finisher, long arms, incredibly strong, and he has probably the best motor of any player that would be in this draft class. So when I'm thinking about Shibway, and, and we're going to talk a lot about projecting, and, and there's going to be negatives on his prospect report of he's not skilled enough when he's away from the basket, you know, he, he doesn't have a consistent jump shot out to three. Those are areas he needs to improve. To me, it's kind of quite the contrary. Like when you have a Dennis Rodman, a Reggie Evans type of player who's just so dominant on the glass, you just say, get out there, go rebound, play with energy, stay near the basket whenever you can, set screens for others, roll hard, and be within five feet of the hoop as much as possible. I, th I think that Shibway is going to be able to succeed in that role because he's already doing it at Kentucky. And look, at this point, if we're trying to project his draft ceiling because of his age and some of the limits on just how many minutes a game you can get away with playing somebody like that at the NBA level, I think he's much more a second round guy. But let's think about this draft class in general. I'd say right now, and January 4th, there's about 25 guys that I would consider a first round 
prospect or guy I'd feel comfortable taking in the first. That's pretty low. So could a guy like Shibway sneak into the final, you know, four or five picks of the round? Yeah, he there's definitely a way that could happen. But I would expect the rest of the first round and some of those spots to be filled out with younger guys or, or people with higher upsides and immediate impact shooting wings that a lot of these championship level teams tend to go for when they're on the clock. You know, a guy like uh, Julian Champagny or, or O'Shea Agbaji, if he's still available. After that, there's there's no rhyme or reason to predicting where the second round is going to be right now. So if I had to put a ceiling on Oscar Shibway's draft stock, I'd put it at 31. I think I'm more comfortable in the 45 to 55 range right now. But if he fits what a team is looking for, who's just okay to have an energetic monster big, kills the glass, finishes everything at the rim and blocks some shots, no problem taking him at in the early 30s. Yeah, I think that's a that's a solid fit. Thank you, DJ Simple Jack, for the question. All right, let's transition into the, the philosophical side of the podcast. We had four really good questions that are about drafting, scouting in general, this draft class, and really wanted to bring these to our attention and finish with these as a great launching off point. So first question here is from a former podcast guest here at the box and one stone Hansen at report court. If you're not following him already, you're wrong. Make sure you get out there and do that. Stone does some unbelievable work, asks the right questions and, and does the research and the work behind it. So stone wanted to know which skill is the hardest for me to project in terms of how it translates to the NBA. I, uh, I struggled with this question because I think it's changed over time. I've gotten more comfortable in some areas. I've asked questions of the right you know, NBA draft scouts or people who have been doing this for a longer time than I have and started to see the results and long-term ramifications of some of my former projections, because I've been doing this for a few years now, that I'm starting to get comfortable with figuring out what does project and what doesn't. The best way for me to break it down is kind of by position or position group. So with bigs, this may be a cop-out, but I think with big men, this, the thing I struggle with most to project is how high-usage post-up threats um, you know, really compare to an NBA role. Because right now, post-up guys, a lot of times they score through great footwork. They score through just bodying smaller guys, mastering one, maybe two moves. But how much does that actually translate to touch and finishing around the rim from a catch and finish standpoint? College and the NBA are very different in terms of how they use the post up. So, you know, a guy who is in college and dominates on the block, I always struggle with in some regard thinking, do they have the skills necessary to be a great pick and roll finisher? Because non pick and roll used bigs at lower levels are just they're tougher to project because they're not asked to do that at the college level. Now, again, one of our, you know, 10 commandments of NBA draft scouting is that just because a player isn't asked to do something in college doesn't mean they can't. And, and that's an important lesson that we've learned over time. But I, I also think it's important to note that 
when we're trying to, to make an apples to, to oranges comparison from what they do in college versus what they're going to do in the NBA, it does give me a lot of pause to really think, okay, this guy who dominated in post-ups, where does his offense come from? Is he really going to be a solid pick and roll big? Point guards, I think spread pick and roll passing is probably where I end up on this, especially because not a ton of college teams play spread pick and roll scheme. It's a lot more college based, you know, ball screen motion and continuity. So, you know, I think it's the hardest thing to project their natural feel. I also learned from talking with Fran Frischilla over the summer on a podcast I was fortunate enough to do with him that spread pick and roll reads and playmaking is one of the, the easier things to teach at the NBA level. So it's to me less about the projection of ability as much as it is what level do they really come at once they get into the NBA? You know, are they ready to take off from day one? If you put the ball in their hands, can they make all the right reads on an NBA floor? Or are they going to struggle making an adjustment from a college-based pick-and-roll scheme to a pro one? And wings is probably the most difficult way to answer this question. So I, I searched my brain for a while and, and kind of came up with, with this thought. Volume shooters and, and high-volume scorers in college and how they adjust to an off-ball role, that's what I struggle with the most. You know, with wings, I think we have the hardest time projecting how they're going to adapt to less of a main role. And, and that's one of the reasons why we love those plug and play three and D wings who have already done that in college, right? Guys like Trey Murphy, the third or, or Josh green, when he was at Arizona, Corey Kispert at Gonzaga, the role that they were asked to fulfill in college is very easy to see how it translates to the pros. And because that's a little more apples to apples than maybe a, high volume scoring wing, we tend to favor that a little bit more. I'm just not sold on knowing that that's the right approach, right? I think that you can find somebody who's super skilled and talented and then teach them how to, how to understand their NBA role and, and how to impact the game positively on that floor later on. So what I struggle with are those guys who in college fulfill that high volume role and then trying to figure out what it's going to look like when they when they get to the pros and they're asked to, to temper that down. Really good question there by Stone. Another friend of the pod, Hunter Cruz, at Hunter Cruz 14. Which player in this draft cycle has given you the toughest time in terms of projecting their draft position? Really fascinating. I think the most obvious answer has to be Jan Montero for Overtime Elite just because there's a lack of film stats, like he's out of sight, out of mind in a lot of ways. I had my reservations about Montero coming into the year. And he is that one prospect who has slightly moved up because everyone else has moved down. That type of player makes me really, really uneasy. You know, in, in our most recent mock, I think we had him going 14th overall. I entered the season with him outside of the top 30 and I haven't been able to dive in or watch a full overtime elite game to really feel comfortable knowing that he is the reason behind his rise, not everybody else. So I'm going to be continually wishy-washy with Montero. I'm using him right now as kind of the, 
the measuring stick for whether the class is improving throughout the rest of the year, getting worse based on preseason projections, kind of where things are at moving uh, next to him. And then at some point, I'm going to have to find a way to dive in and make up for last time, lost time and watch a lot of games. I'll leave two other names on this list as kind of honorable mentions for toughest to, to project in this class. Harrison Ingram for Stanford. Like I love his feel, his competitiveness. I really struggled to slot, not just positionally, but what he does really well on an NBA court. And then Jabari Walker from Colorado is another guy I struggle with. Like I like him a lot in theory, but much less in practice on a, on a consistency level. The jump shot's not very consistent. He disappears for long stretches of time. Again, you like athletic switchable fours who can space the floor and, and finish pretty efficiently near the basket. But I just, I, I'm struggling to see it right now with Walker and, and, and really flipping back and forth between having him as kind of a late first guy and, and even more of a, a mid to late second round right now. Steven Gillespie. Again, we are just loading up on friends of the pod right here at Stephen G Hoops. He asked a question: Who are some of the top players that I feel will or should return for another season of college or international play? I kind of stay away from the international side of things just because I don't always have as good of a feel for knowing the decisions that go into whether a player should stay or come to the NBA. You know, the, the main reason behind that is because I don't have as good of a feel for what the other pro teams in Europe are looking for and how they, you know, sign guys to their league, what's a lucrative contract contract. And, and quite frankly, there are many guys that are and aren't motivated by just going to the NBA right away. Some want to stay over there and make a career for themselves in Europe. So I kind of, I'm copping out, but I'm pushing the international stuff aside to me, you know, Tyrese Hunter stands out as somebody I think would benefit from going back to school for another year, just to continue to work on the jump shot. I also think that with another year, uh, Iowa state could prove that they're not just kind of a flash in the pan, good team as, as their season has started at right now, but they could prove they deserve to be a top 25 team. If Hunter leads them their two straight years, his defense continues to be at a really high level. He thrives in transition and he improves his jump shot he almost takes one of those Jade and Ivy type of leaps from year one to year two. I think the two Gonzaga guards that are freshmen and Nolan Hickman and, and Hunter Salas are probably well-served coming back just because Gonzaga is always so deep. You know, Nemard is getting a ton of minutes for them right now. It, it's, it's hard to really know where to project those guys. And then Bryce Hopkins for Kentucky, another guy I'll throw out there. There's just a log jam in Lexington right now transfers have come in and he's on the outside looking in. We had Hopkins as a, a first round talent coming into the season, but it's hard to know whether that's holding up because his, his minutes fluctuate so much and, and he's more on the outside looking in. The, the last question of the night here comes from Wilson Dang on YouTube. This is regarded as a, a weak draft class. Do you believe it will end up being that way? And, and I thought this was a great way to wrap up the pod here, really an all-encompassing question about the draft class as a whole. What I've learned over the last few years of doing this is that no draft is truly weak. It's just much harder to predict. This one's hard to predict because the freshmen are struggling. 
And there's an overall lack of top end talent that clearly stands out, but there is depth to be found. And, and where I think value picks for me right now, probably come in the early twenties of this draft. I think you can get a pretty solid player based on, you know, where average position would be in, in other drafts in that early twenties range. I also think that there are going to be plenty of younger guys, freshmen, you know, sophomores who haven't necessarily gotten a ton of time, international prospects who go early in the second round. And those are guys that I'm, I'm really, uh, I would be willing to bet that a lot of them pop and end up, we look back and say, this wasn't necessarily a weak draft. It might've been weaker at the top, but there were a lot of guys that surprised us in that second round. So you know, if there's one thing I've learned from scouting during the COVID era, it's that time and reps really can't be replaced. I mean, look at Brandon Boston, for example. He's, he's playing very well for the Los Angeles Clippers. We thought he was a top five pick coming into college, and he struggled in his freshman year at Kentucky. Struggled. There's no, no way to sugarcoat that. He ended up going 51st in the NBA draft. And Look, he's already playing some positive minutes for the Clippers as a rookie. He looks solid defensively. His body looks better. He's shown flashes of who we thought he could be offensively. I don't think there's any way he doesn't go in the top 30 in a redraft of, of the 2021 cycle. Now, there are a ton of guys who struggled last year who are actually killing it now as sophomores. Caleb Love, I think, is, is bordering on being a first-round draft pick. Uh, was awful. As a freshman, night and day change from year one to year two. Jonathan Davis at Wisconsin probably played his way into being a top 10 pick despite not getting a ton of minutes as a, as a first year. Very inconsistent role on a senior-laden Wisconsin team last year. And even before COVID, we've had guys who struggle to find their footing right away. Johnny Juzang had to transfer from Kentucky to UCLA in order to get his game to pop, and he was being talked about as a solid first-round draft pick last year. Not where I had him, but there was some buzz and conversation. So what I would prioritize instead of viewing this class as weak is taking those younger guys who didn't pop off the screen early on or, or in their first year. Feel comfortable taking Peyton Watson in the first round. Spend an early second round pick on a guy like Dominic Barlow from Overtime Elite. You know, Go with Matthew Cleveland despite the lack of shooting and feel like you can teach that and try to figure it out. It, to me, in a weaker draft class, this is all the justification you need for swinging on a, a high-risk, high-reward prospect in the second round. And if enough teams do that, this is going to be one of those situations where we look back and say, probably wasn't a weak draft class, but more than anything, we just didn't know where the top talent was to be found. And thank you to all of our listeners, viewers, you know, friends of the pod who, who submitted some questions here. Make sure that you uh, you like our, our podcast. Leave a comment if you can on Apple, on Spotify, on TuneIn, wherever you, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And then find us with the video version on YouTube as well. Like that video, subscribe to our channel. We've got a lot of great content coming soon. And over the next two weeks, we're going to be taking some temperature checks on the podcast here, going over the midway point of the season with draft boards and, and how some of these players are faring as well as looking at an NBA level and, and taking a look at the draft through the lens of some of the teams that are going to be picking at the top. What do they need? What are they trending towards? And which players might fit their best? 
As always, thank you for all of your support, and we'll see you next week.